Our passage this morning is actually rather straightforward, entitled in my Bible, The Cost of Following Jesus, and it consists of three sayings by three would-be disciples. The three sayings are the sayings of Jesus. It's what he says to them that we're meant to remember, and about all you need to know. You don't have to know much about the language or the custom or anything uh, behind the passage. You just need to know that the word disciple is the word used in the Gospels and the first half of the book of Acts to describe a person who is a devoted and instructed follower of Jesus. The whole purpose of the Christian church is defined by Jesus in the words, the final words that he spoke, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. So that's why we're here this morning. Now, you might note in the passage that the first and the third of these would-be disciples volunteer to follow Jesus, while the second one is personally invited by Jesus to follow him, but there seems to be no distinction made by that fact. Uh, The point in each case is Jesus's response to them. And the first one says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responds by saying, all creatures have a home. The birds have some place in the trees, either a nest or a sheltered place they return to in the evening. Foxes have dens in the earth. Everything has a home. But during this time on the earth, I do not have a home. I don't know where I'll be staying tonight. And the implication is that this man likes his security more than that. He likes more certainty in life. And Jesus is saying, are you really prepared to be my disciple if you are more concerned about your daily needs than about the kingdom? The second one responds to Jesus' call by saying, first let me go and bury my father providing an honorable burial, caring for one's parents in old age was an important Jewish custom as it is a human custom for us at all times. And Jesus says to him words that seem to mean let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Now is not the time, Jesus is saying, for trivialities. Are you really prepared to meet my disciple? If you are more concerned for your family responsibilities than you are for the kingdom of God. The third offers himself as a follower with a different qualification. He says, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replies, my disciples cannot be distracted by other relationships. That would be like a person trying to plow a straight line in the field behind the oxen. But while he's doing it, he's looking behind him to see where he's already been. It won't work. If those relationships are so distracting to you, are you really prepared to be my disciple? Now, the words are very strong. They're meant to be. The sayings of Jesus are very strong to these people. But they're, they're easily understood as to what he was saying. But the last couple of weeks, I've really struggled with this passage as I've begun reflecting on it. Some of you are thinking, leave it to Tom to take simple words of Jesus and make them complicated. <laughs> but my problem really arose with the second example. It's like I was reflecting on this a couple of weeks ago. The man says, let me first bury my father. Now, interpreters differ as to whether he means my father's just died and I need to take care of the burial, which would have been, particularly if he was first born, which the pastor doesn't tell us, but it, it would have been a heavy responsibility given to him. Or, or whether he means my father's in his old age and I have a responsibility of taking care of him and burying him in an honorable way. Let me take care of that first and then I'll follow you. Now, I'm old enough to have uh, walked with both of my parents and my wife's parents through their old age to their deaths. 
I participated in all of their burials, and for each one, I spoke at their funeral. Only for my parents did I conduct the funeral. But during that whole time, it was 12 years from first to last and ended last year with the Laura's mother's passing. During that time, I read the Bible several times, and I read this passage several times. And never once did it ever cross my mind when I was reading this passage that Jesus was speaking directly to me. I, I never felt when he said, let the dead bury the dead, you should be preaching, that he was saying there's some conflict between my fulfilling my responsibility to my parents and uh, fulfilling my preaching responsibility. But I have to ask you, isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Was I just not taking Jesus' words straightforwardly that speak exactly to my situation? After all, what's the Bible for if it doesn't contain the instruction that we need to teach us how to live for God? And here's a situation that many, most people will face in life at some point. They will be responsible to bury their parents. And, and doesn't, isn't this meant to inform us how we should live faithful lives, what we should do? Now listen to me. A faithful, God-honoring church, the kind of church that Jesus calls my church, And this rock I will build, my church. That kind of church is not a church that has a well-known and powerful preacher at its helm. Only in America, in our celebrity culture, could that idea come up. Powerful church is a church that's made up of healthy, serious Christians. And healthy, serious Christians are Bible-reading people. That's how it's always been. That's the means God has given to us to maintain our health. And, and, and just look around us. We're living in a culture that is um, degenerating and weakening at a rapid pace. I read the news last night and thought the children have taken over the government. And, and the fact is, you, Christian, you're the hope of the world. According to the Bible, you are the only hope. And it's going to take, on our part, as the people of God, supernatural love and compassion for people. And at the same time, supernatural strength of character to be able to say to our generation, as we need to say, the same words that Isaiah the prophet said to his generation, this is the way, walk in it. But what I've found through the years in my efforts to help you become a Bible-reading people, it's very difficult because it's a big, thick book and doesn't have any pictures. People don't read today. We live in a culture that's declining in in, in reading abilities. And God didn't give us any other mean but words on a page in order to know him and to understand him, apart from his spirit. He gave us the word. So what I want to do is I want to take this passage, and and I want to consider how we ought to read it responsibly. What does it mean for us to read it and take it seriously as the people of God, and try to apply it to our lives. Now, here's a simple maxim, and I need to say, my my, uh, phone won't work, so you'll have to do this. Um, Here's the first thing. It's like a simple maxim that I learned a long time ago, and it really helps in reading the Bible. Everything in Scripture was written for us, but not everything was written to us. Everything in Scripture was written for us, but it was not all written to us. When I say everything was written for us, what I mean is that everything in the Bible is there for our benefit. Here's a verse that says that. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul wrote, for everything or for whatever was written 
in former days, and he's referring to the scriptures, everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, that tells us that every single verse in the Bible is relevant to us, has some value in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to live a Christian life, to honor God. Every single verse. Not just the verses we automatically understand, like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But even verses like Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't have any idea what that means, but I do know this. It has some relevance to us, to our understanding of God, what God wants for us. Every verse was written for our instruction. So everyone is profitable to us in some way. That doesn't, however, mean that every single verse in the Bible is written directly to us. Little, in fact, a very little amount of the Bible's information was written directly to us. Rather, the Bible is a record of words that were spoken to others in different contexts than we find ourselves today. In earlier times, they weren't spoken directly to us today. So just consider two different kinds of verses, and I want you to think of these as kind of bookends. These are like two extremes of how verses can be used in the Bible or what they mean for us. The first one is this. It's found in Luke chapter 12, and it says, Jesus, saying of Jesus, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, that verse, you don't have to know anything about the context. You can rip it torn and bleeding out of its context, put it on the screen, and it means the same thing to us that it meant to the person who first heard it in Luke chapter 12. Now, the truth is, those words were not spoken to us. Those words were spoken by Jesus during his earthly ministry to a first century Jewish man who asked him to arbitrate his father's will in a dispute between him and his brother. And Jesus said, take care and be on guard against all illicit desire for things because life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. But the fact is, that's just as true to us. There's direct application to us even though it wasn't spoken to us. On the other hand, I want you to consider some other words that are found in the Gospels. Jesus also speaking. This is a saying of Jesus. He says in John chapter 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Those words also were not spoken to you. They weren't spoken to us today. They were spoken to the apostles in the upper room, on the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion at the Last Supper. And they do not directly apply to you in any way. These words are not meant to be a promise to every believer that when you get in a situation where you need to remember the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will bring them to your mind. It's hard to bring to mind things that were never put in there to begin with. So that's not what it's about. These words weren't written to you. They weren't spoken to you. They were spoken to the apostles. They're very important for us, though. They were written for our benefit. And what they tell us is that Jesus promised the apostles that when they later began to record the things that they had experienced and heard in the presence of Jesus during his earthly ministry, they would remember those things and record them accurately. 
So it gives to us great assurance that what we have in the New Testament is we have an accurate record guided by the Spirit of the works and the words of the Son of God when he was on the earth. They were recorded for us by witnesses, and they're completely relevant for our benefit, for our learning today. That's what those words uh, mean. So you can think of those as two different extremes. You have words that have a direct application to us without any cultural gulf that you have to bridge. And then you have words that have no application to us in a direct sense. However, they are words that tell us uh, about things we need to know in order to have assurance in following Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to take that and understand that there's verses that might be all in between those two bookends. I want to take that and apply it to the gospel passage we're considering this week. As you look at this passage, you ask the question, to whom were these words spoken? Well, obviously they were spoken to three would-be disciples. We know that they're recorded for our instruction. Scripture tells us that. But the question is, are these sayings of Jesus, these three sayings, are they like the saying of Jesus to the man who asked him to arbitrate his father's will? In which case, they mean exactly the same thing to us as they meant to the man who first heard them? Or are they more like the words that Jesus spoke to the apostles in the upper room at the Last Supper, in which case they do not directly apply to us, but they're important in some way for our living the Christian life? Which one is it? Well, these three would-be disciples all say, I will follow you, but... In fact, if you read carefully, the the second and the third say that more directly. They give their qualification. This is what needs to happen first, and then I will follow you. Well, the first one doesn't, but he really means it. What he says sounds perfectly acceptable. I will follow you wherever you go. And how could Jesus turn him down? I will follow you wherever you go. But what happens is, what happens sometimes in the gospel, Jesus gives us understanding that he possesses insight into people's character and their motivation. And we find that when we read the Gospels, rather troubling at times, that he has this kind of insight. He gathers that this man is not a man who lives fly by night. He's a very careful planner. This isn't the guy who wakes his wife and kids up early in the morning, bundles them off into the car and says, we're headed on vacation. Where are we going, honey? I don't know. I think we'll head west. Where are we going to stay tonight, Johnny says. I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. It's inauguration weekend. We're going to go to Washington, D.C., but we'll figure out where we're going to stay. (laughs) He's not that kind of guy. This is a guy who carefully plans life. And what Jesus says to him in his answer is, listen, during my messianic mission, this three and a half years of my public ministry, I am wandering about from place to place, not knowing where I'm going to stay on any given night. No certainty whatsoever. In other words, you have to understand the saying in its context is at least in part related to the unique quality of Jesus' earthly ministry. That brief period, especially towards the end of his earthly life, after the baptism by John the Baptist and before the crucifixion, that time period which was probably around three and a half years when Jesus defines his own work as the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. During that time, discipleship meant literally giving up all your security and physically 
following Jesus around the Judean countryside. Or, or look at the second person. He says, let me first bury my father. Uh, a, a task assigned by the Old Testament to one's family members. And while the context doesn't seem to, to demand it, I personally incline towards the idea that his father hasn't yet died. That, that he's saying, let me take care of my family responsibilities uh, before I do this, then I'll be ready. And Jesus responds to him, I'm here for a very short time. In fact, we're now entering the last year of Jesus' life. As Paul mentioned last week, he turned and set his face to head to Jerusalem. This records the last months of Jesus' life that he ended in Jerusalem and, and was crucified. And Jesus says to him, my work ultimately is go, to go to the cross. I don't expect you to go to the cross, but I expect you, if you want to be my disciple, to engage in that ministry that will prepare me for that arduous task. And if you want to be my disciple, I can't sit around and wait for you to fulfill your family responsibilities. The time is now, not later. Your life responsibilities, even the ones assigned to you by God, must be set aside during this unique time. And the third one is similar, but in this case, it's his relationships that matter. The relationships God gave to him. Let me say goodbye to my family. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, when the prophet Elijah anointed the prophet Elisha to take his place in the next generation, Elisha said to him, let me say goodbye to my family. And Elijah said, go ahead. That's not what Jesus says. Because Jesus was more than a prophet. And what Jesus was doing was something greater than what the prophets did. And Jesus said to this man, I'm here to inaugurate the eternal kingdom. And your relationships are a distraction right now. Follow me. Now these three sayings record accurately how Jesus responded to three Middle Eastern men in the first century. When we read the Bible, here in the Gospels, we have to first place the conversations that we're reading about in the context in which they occurred, the context of the earthly ministry of the Messiah, that three-and-a-half-year period where he prepared his disciples to change the world and where he prepared himself to go to his death in the place of sinners. So think of it. The conditions of the first century, of that brief period of time, when the Son of God stepped out of eternity and into time, and he assumed a human nature, that time was so unique that all normal conditions of life were going to have to be suspended in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus' point to each one is essentially the same. Have you considered the implications of your discipleship, of your offer to follow me? Now, we have to ask the question then. If that's what Jesus was saying, and he was saying it to these three individuals, how does that apply to us? Do these conditions apply to us directly in some way? If they do, then the demand of discipleship is exactly the same for us as it was for them. We must be willing not to have a home for the sake of the gospel. We must uh, neglect our God-given responsibilities to our parents for the sake of the gospel. We must, in fact, abandon all human relationships that are important to us for the sake of the gospel. And if that's true, that last one, we must abandon all human relationships for Jesus, then it contradicts something Paul later says when he says in 1 Timothy, if anyone does not provide 
for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And I don't think there Paul is saying the person is going to hell. I think what he's saying, that kind of Christian is doing something, not doing something, that even unbelievers do. Everyone in the world takes care of their parents. And a person who doesn't do that is doing something you don't even have to be a believer to know what it means to do. So that's, that's not what I think this passage says. I don't think this passage is meant to apply directly to us. Jesus is not present in the flesh. He's not engaged in his final mission, the hinge of history in which he provided atonement for sinners. He's not calling us to earthly discipleship to follow him around the countryside. So let's consider what is it we do learn from this passage. Well, let's think on a rather surface level first. We learn what Jesus demanded of his would-be followers during his earthly ministry. We certainly learn that. This passage reminds us that the visitation of the Messiah was a very unique time. It was recorded by eyewitnesses to tell us what it is we ought to know. And what the eyewitnesses actually experienced was the time promised by the prophets in the Old Testament when the Messiah would visit them and he would set in motion the final act in God's drama of redemption. And that's during the time which we live, in the final act, the last days. That was all set in motion by the death and resurrection of Christ. And you see, during that unique time, the hinge of history, all normal conditions were suspended. All normal responsibilities and relationships had to be set aside. And that explains one thing that's a mystery to people sometimes. Why did the word disciple drop out of the life of the Christian churches. I mean, here's what I mean. It's used, the word disciple, on almost every page of the Gospels. And then you read the book of Acts, and it's used a number of times until you come to the end of Acts chapter 11. At the end of Acts chapter 11, it says these words. It was in Antioch, a city in Syria, the church that sent the Apostle Paul out on his missionary journeys. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Here's what I think happened. The word disciple was a word applied to that unique time period. It described literally following Jesus, listening to him, watching what he did, and obeying the things that he said. And as the church, after the death and resurrection and return of Jesus to heaven, as the church went on in the mission God gave to us, the word disciples didn't seem the most appropriate word to apply to those of us who live after that time period, even though we are disciples. What happens is after that point in Acts chapter 11, the word is used just a few times in the rest of the book of Acts, and it's never used again in the rest of the New Testament. None of the letters use the word disciple. It's not that the word is wrong. It's a good word. And after all, Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples. That's our function. But what it tells us is that there's a reason why the word disciple became less and less used. The reason is it didn't seem to apply to the kind of people we are today. It's a great word to describe those who literally follow Jesus. And and you see, these words in Luke chapter 9, they weren't written or spoken to us. But like everything in Scripture, we're meant to make application from us. On one level, they tell us what Jesus demanded of his earthly disciples during the time of his mission. 
But let's consider, is there more meaning than that? Because I believe there is in these passages. These things are also meant to give us instruction about what discipleship means in any age. But it doesn't mean that they directly speak to us. For example, what we need to do is we need to take these three people and consider not exactly the words that Jesus said to them in that context, but what it was the person was concerned with. What is the parallel between their lives and their concerns, and how does Jesus speak to that? The first man was really concerned for security. He was saying, I want to know that I have a place to sleep tonight, and that's not a bad thing. And Jesus doesn't say that that every generation of people can't know that they have a home or anything like that. But what he says is, if security in life is your chief concern, you will never be my disciple. Because, you see, you will never step out of your comfort zone far enough to help a poor person because you don't know what they're going to do with your money. You will never give away money, at least not very much, because every penny that you give away could be set aside for your own security in the future, Right? Why would you give it away? You'll never go on a mission trip. I remember going with the elders. Uh, the only one I see here is Randy Westerman in the back. I remember going with the elders in 1996 to Albania, shortly five years after communism fell. It was when we established our relationship with our sister church. And it happened when we went. There was the first or the second, I think it was, national election. They had moved from communism, and they were slowly, it took about 20 years, moving into some kind of parliamentary democracy. And people that haven't been raised in that, it's a very difficult thing to change into. And we were told, you ought to be careful because there could be a rebellion. And I'll never forget, we're in the city of Shkoder. I happened to stay with this family uh, by myself, and I was sleeping in the bed, and the guns start going off after dark. Found out the next day, it was rejoicing. The right person won, so we're all shooting our guns up in the air. But, you know, I didn't know that. Why would you ever go into a situation like that if security is the most important thing in your whole life? The second man was really concerned for responsibility. And that's not a bad thing either. That's a good thing. But following Jesus means that your agenda in life has to become second to his agenda for you. So if your responsibility is the most important thing, comes before everything else, then you won't spend much time reading the Bible or praying or attending a small group until you're sure that you have fulfilled adequately every single other responsibility in life. And the third man was concerned for relationships, and the same idea applies. I mean, you understand what I mean. It's not too much to say that this passage has a lot of things for us here. We could each spend this afternoon just chewing on these words of Jesus and thinking about how does this apply to my life? How does it apply to my life today? What does it mean for me to make the hard choices of choosing to put him first place in my life? and letting other things revolve around that. And for some people, that's going to mean giving your family more time and setting aside your hobbies and recreation and work and other responsibilities for your family's sake. And for others, it's going to mean sometimes letting the children know mom and dad aren't going to be home tonight because we're going to a Bible study because we love God. It doesn't mean the same thing all the time for all the time for every single person. What it means is you make the hard choices that say, "I am not in charge of my own agenda in life. God is." In other words, Jesus is saying to each one of us, "If you become my disciples, you will give up control of your own life. Your future is not your own. 
Your responsibilities are not your own. Your relationships are not your own. And you see, for those of us who are Christians, baptism is the point when a person says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I intend to follow him. A person doesn't say, I'm willing to make those hard choices, and I'm going to do it perfectly from now on. Just like a man, when he gets married, says, I will love you and put you first place in my life, doesn't think, shouldn't think, he's going to do that perfectly every moment. But it means this is what I intend to do. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to here at the conclusion of the service. So let me pray, and then Joe's going to come up and lead you in a song. Our gracious God, again, as we come to you, we thank you that you have given to us this, this record of the life of Jesus. Thank you that it is fully accurate, guided by the Spirit, that we in any generation might read it and seek to know what you want us to do, what it means to follow you. So we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would help us learn to read the Bible, to read it um, faithfully and responsibly, and to seek to apply it to our lives. And we pray that even this morning, as some people do that in a very vivid sense, as they give confession of faith and baptism, we ask that you would strengthen them by your Spirit and us as a church to stand with them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.